My name is Christopher. I get the awesome privilege of uh, pastoring youth, uh, a younger congregation, and uh, I love doing that, and I I love speaking and preaching um, the Bible, so I get the opportunity to do that because Pastor Terry is amazing and gives me opportunities all the time. So uh, I want to dive in uh, on the topic of thankfulness. You're probably like, we talk about it all the time during Thanksgiving. It's so cliche, and uh, we really don't, actually. It's just funny. We mostly talk about football and turkey, so, which I have no clue what that has to do with Thanksgiving, but it does now. It's like a, it's on the docket for Thanksgiving. So, but I want to, um, I want to talk about thankfulness, kind of unpack the idea as it relates to Christians and grace and, and all these things that we think about and receive, um, and what it really means to us. And my hope and expectation is really that God will open our eyes, my eyes, your eyes, to see what thankfulness really looks like, to see what kills thanks, thankfulness, gratitude, and what also causes thankfulness. Because we all know we should be thankful. You don't need me to stand up here and say, you should be thankful. The Bible says be thankful. Um, because you would boo at me. Because you know that. You know that you need to be thankful. You know that thankfulness is good to, to have a good attitude. But uh, besides that point, or on top of that, I want to get to the bottom of what causes it and what kills it. Because that's usually what happens. We start thankful and then something happens and it kills it. And we don't know how to get it back or what really stopped that and why we're being ungrateful. So I want to start out, start out with a proposition. It's really a belief, not just a thought or a quote. This is a belief that I stand on. It's this. I believe that Christians should be the most thankful people in the world. I love it. You guys are awesome. This is bad. I can go really long with this. Okay. <laughs> no amens there. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, I believe Christians should be the most thankful people in the world. I do. I do. I believe that they should be the most thankful people in the world. And I want to go as far as to say that this is logical and that all people should find no trouble agreeing with this. And this is the problem. Some people will agree with this. Not really a problem. It's a tension. It's a good tension. But I believe that this is so logical. Because if you read the Bible and look at what the Bible says about humans, about you and me, then you read the Bible and look at what it says about God and his character, how he's loving and patient and good to us. Then you read in the Bible what God has done for us, despite us, despite me, despite my failures. There's no way that you can look at all this and say, wow, well, that's not true. Reading all this in the Bible, just knowing the basics of Christianity, how God has pursued sinners and loved them and died for them and made a way for them and wants to bless them, that makes sense. And it would be illogical to be ungrateful after knowing that. It would be illogical, I believe. Even if you don't believe an ounce of it. Some of you guys inside here this morning cannot, maybe you don't believe in Christianity, you don't understand it, you're not kind of connecting all the dots, or maybe you're trying to figure things out. Maybe you're against it, but you're just here. Um, You don't have to believe in the Bible to agree with that statement. Because once you realize that Christians do believe in the Bible and believe in everything the Bible says about God and his love for us, you have to realize they they better be the most thankful people in the world. Even if it is fake, which I don't believe it at one bit, the Bible, every single word is from God. If you didn't believe it, you still would go, after reading that story and seeing how that God loved those people, despite how many times they rebelled against them and he continually pursued them, you have to go, they have to be the most thankful people. Just reading that makes you think that. And following Jesus and having him bless you and the promises he has for you is more than enough to overflow your tanks with gratitude. So this is my natural question. How is it possible for anyone to be more grateful than a Christian? 
That's, my, that's just a question that it kind of naturally comes with that statement. How is it really possible for anyone to be more grateful than a Christian? And to really answer that, you have to get to this question. What can possibly cause a Christian to be ungrateful? What can really cause a Christian, you and I who believe in Jesus, love Jesus, um, and follow Jesus, to really start being ungrateful when we have all these blessings to be thankful for? So this morning, I want to unpack that question and look at thankfulness from both sides of the coin. So if you would uh, turn to Luke 17, it'll be on the screen so you don't have to worry if you don't have a Bible, but we encourage you to bring your Bibles because we love them. So uh, Luke 17, I really believe in this little short story, 10 verses, this story gives us some insight into this question um, that will that shocked me when I read it. And uh, I just want to share with you guys because God totally... Um, talks about thankfulness and points out both sides in the story. So we're going to read some verses, unpack it, read some more. It's a really short story. So Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. These lepers lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So you have these 10 guys, 10 lepers. Now leprosy is still around. There's, I think about 100 people diagnosed every year in America and other third world countries more frequently. But it's a disease where the, uh, your skin um, be- begins to be damaged and the nerves begin to rot and there's severe skin sores, severe uh, nerve damage where skin starts falling off or things start not working and you can't feel your legs or arms and you really look disfigured because your m- muscles and nerves get disfigured. And these people were considered unclean. I mean, the people in the Jewish uh, culture in that town, their family, their neighbors, the temple where the church was really back then, they would think you're, you're disgusting. You're unclean. If you get close to us, we're going to get dirty. So you need to stay far away from us. So you were outcasted if you were a leper. You were, you were put on the outskirts of the city. They weren't allowed to be with their families. They didn't stay home with their, with their spouse. They weren't allowed to be in worship in the temple because they were unclean. So, of course, they go, when they see Jesus, they must have known Jesus somehow because he wasn't wearing a name tag and he didn't have a halo on his head. They must have known something about this man. So when they see him, finally, they go, man, Jesus, master, come on, have pity on us. Show some compassion. Help us. We want to be healed, which is a natural response, of course. So they're asking that, and they say master, which in my mind thinks they must have known Jesus and known that he's pretty powerful. Or that something's up with Jesus because they probably heard rumors and stories about how he's walking on water and healing people and feeding the poor. They've heard stories, of course, because they say master, Jesus. They know what's going on with Jesus. He has some kind of authority. So they want him to show compassion on them. And what happens next? When Jesus saw them, he said to them, this is so weird, go and show yourselves to the priest. So they're asking for a healing. You know, something like, you know, you can, you can spit on me, you can yell at me, you can clap your hands, you can pray, whatever, just heal me right now. You know, clap, snap your fingers, whatever, just heal me right now. It's all I want is for me to be cleansed, for this leprosy to be gone. And what does Jesus do? Instead of saying, you're healed, go. He says, oh, go show, go show yourself to the priest. That's so random for us reading this unless you knew that in Leviticus 14, uh, the first five books of the Bible, that was like their ceremonial law, what the Jews held tightly of how to just live and their daily, day-to-day actions, cleansing and, and eating food. This is what it said in Leviticus 14. If you were sick, if you had leprosy, skin disease, anything like that, if you were considered unclean, 
then that means that you were outcasted. And, you, and if you did get healing, you had to go to the priest in order for him to accept you and verify that you were cleansed. And once you were verified, you were able to offer sacrifices, go through a purification process where you shaved your head and washed, which, which makes sense because you might still be diseased. So that's what Jesus is saying. They want healing. Jesus says, go to the priest. And what happens? Well, while they're walking on their way to show themselves to the priest, they must have thought, this is crazy because we're not cleansed. We're still dirty. They're going to get mad. They're going to kick us out. They're going to ostracize us again. I'm going to feel ashamed. And while they're walking, the Bible says they were cleansed. While they were walking to the priest. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, when he noticed, oh my, I'm healed. Something's changing. On the mission, on the way to that, he's turned back. He didn't go to the priest. He didn't stay with his family. He didn't go back to normal life. He stopped, noticed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. I love it. He noticed right there, bam, oh my gosh, I'm clean. I need to go back and say thank you to that man who who cleansed me, who healed me. And didn't say he went back silent. That's why we need to be a lively church saying amen. Because he said with a loud voice he was praising God. Can you imagine this leper who everyone's ostracized is now turning back, probably leaping with joy, screaming praises to God by himself, running back to Jesus. That's beautiful. So he runs back to Jesus. And what happens? And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. The Greek letter says he threw himself down at Jesus' feet, prostrate, flat, a sign of worship and adoration and thankfulness. Flat, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Remember that. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Didn't I heal 10 people? I know I'm not that bad at math. I'm God. Did I not heal 10 people? Someone give me amen. And then, you know, he's probably asking the other crowd, where are the nine? He's probably upside himself. What? What? This Samaritan came back, but the other guys didn't? We'll unpack that in a second. Was no one found, Jesus says, to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And in the Greek, the, the phrase, your faith has made you well, literally means has saved you. Salvation saving. As in, okay, I physically healed you, but now you had enough faith and thankfulness to come back. You're, you're cleansed inside. I'm going to save you and clean you from the inside out now. He got something that other people didn't because he was thankful. And he came back. Now, here's the kicker. That nine that were healed, they were most likely Jewish people. Because he said, oh, this foreigner came back. Now, Jesus would have said only this foreigner if everyone was foreigners. He knew this guy was a Samaritan and the rest were Jewish people. And that's a shock because the Samaritans and Jews were like the Niners and, 49, and the Niners and Raiders. Okay, and then they were opposite. They hated each other. They despised each other. They looked down on each other. One thought the other was bad. The other thought the other was bad. And the Samaritans thought, or the Jews thought that Samaritans were just wicked. Because they took their law and mixed it with their own religious beliefs. And they were kind of hybrids or hybrids of, of the religious Jewish religion or this belief system. And they kind of mixed what they wanted to follow and cut things out and worship different gods plus Yahweh, God. 
So the Jews didn't like that. So the Jews thought they were wicked, but Jews believed themselves to be holy. See the difference? When you see someone else to be wicked and you to be holy, that's a big gap. So they were at war with each other, basically. And they were, they were viewed and considered as being outsiders of God's people. Literally, they were outside of God's plan, outside of blessing. That's what the Jews believed. They were strangers because the Jews were God's chosen people. We know that. God worked through them. He made them a nation. He delivered them continually, blessed them, provided for them, spoke through them. So they were special, of course. But the Samaritans were considered just way on the outside, on the fringe, not important. So for this Samaritan, who should be hating Jews, and for Jude to be loving a Samaritan, that was a shock that this guy, out of the nine Jews, this one Samaritan foreigner, outsider, stranger, comes back and says, thank you. And he fell at Jesus' feet and thanks him. So I hope you're asking yourself right now, how does this connect with thankfulness? How does this connect with the opening question about, you know, what can cause a Christian to be ungrateful? How does this all connect? And here's a little side note for you. We would all, you would all, I would, I would, when I'm sitting down listening to sermons, we would all benefit much more if we, in a sermon, if we didn't just simply hear the sermon. You get what I'm saying? Like, if we didn't just hear the sermon, we would benefit more because then you're wrestling with what I'm saying. You're wrestling with what you're hearing God say. You're connecting the dots. You're taking active notes. And this is what I've learned personally and through the Bible. The power of God's word, the life-changing power of God's word always dovetails and merges with the receptiveness of your heart. If you're receptive, if you want to receive things, if you want to grow, if you want to learn, if you want something to change in your life, if you want God to do something for you, with you, in you, through you, whatever, if you want to change, then God's power will meet you. God's word will meet you where you're at and change you. And also, I know this, God's power, the power of God's word dovetails with the activity of your engagement. So be engaged. Take notes, wrestle, think, critically think about this. Don't just receive what we hear or what, what we say. Every time Pastor Terry, I get up, uh, Ian, any people that speak on stage, don't just take it as this is God's word. We want you. We encourage you. We pray for you to think about it, to wrestle with it, to uh, just, just to really break it down and what it means for you and what God is saying through the Bible. And um, we know that God will speak the same thing to everyone uh, because God speaks in unity. He doesn't just... Tell one person one thing, the other person in contrast. We believe that. So, so just think about it. What, what does it have to do with thankfulness? How does this connect with what is causing Christians to be ungrateful? And I believe a big chunk of the answer has to do with how the Samaritan responded versus how those nine Jews responded. And here's what we have to understand first before we unpack that. The Jews believed God favored them over all nations. They believed that wholeheartedly. Hands down, they believed they were the special ones above all else. They were the ones that God loved over everyone else in the whole world. They believed that. And this is why a scripture, Deuteronomy 7, 6, which they would have memorized at age, by age 12, it says this. For you are a holy people, God's talking to the Jewish people, who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, all nations, all people, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. God's saying, I, I loved you. I, I chose you out of all people. I chose you, your nation, you as a nation, you as a people, you as Jews to be my people, to be my treasure, to exercise what I have to say and tell the world and spread to the world my grace and love. The Jewish people believe that. 
Now, as we see, it's, it's, in some sense, it's true. God did have a special sort of love for the Jewish people, but we have to read on. This is the kicker. God, it says, God did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. You were the smallest of all. Rather, it was because the Lord loves you and was being faithful to the promise he swore to your ancestors. He's saying, look, I love you and all. You're the apple of my eye. You're the, you're the cherry in my heart, if that makes sense. You're, I love you. You're special. You're a treasure. But don't get so excited. It's not because of what you did. It's because I love you. It's because of my character. It's because I'm faithful. And I promised people I'm going to act a certain way, and I'm going to follow through with that promise. Nothing was hinged on the Jewish people and what they did. They weren't huge. They weren't good looking. I mean, not, not like in a bad way, but um, they weren't talented. They weren't special like that. They were normal people. But God chose them, not because of their own efforts, but because God loved them. But see, it's real easy to love the first verse and, well, just forget about the second verse. We love the special treasure. Christians do this, right? We, God loves us. He saves us. He blesses us. He's going to protect us. And we love that. But we don't want to always remember and go back to the, the, the fact that it's not because of what we have done. <laughs> it's not because of what we continue to do that makes God love us. And nothing you do is, and, and, and say is going to keep God's love on you. Nothing. Which is, if you didn't know, that's good news. Because <laughs> if you, anything like me, you mess up a lot. And I need God's love. And I understand that it's not based on what I do. It's the most freeing thing. It's because of God's choice and love. So the Jews had nothing to boast of on their own effort. They didn't do anything special, but simply because God's choice and love. So here's why I believe those nine Jews didn't return to Jesus and why the one Samaritan did. Here's why I believe that. Because they, in the bottom of their heart, they had a belief that God owed it to them. Hey, I was God's special, I'm God's special people. That it was normal. Come on, God has to bless us. He has to heal us. We are his people. I have an expectation of it. They had a high expectation and they were, in a sense, entitled to healing. Or they believed that. That they were special and it was deserved and expected of God to do such a thing to them because they were his treasure. It's not stated in the verse, even though the previous passage in Luke before this scripture has a lot to do with that belief. They just said, hey, it's normal. We expect God to do this. You know, we're his people. He has to heal us. He better do something for us because we're special. Here's why I believe the Samaritan returned. Because this was an utter shock and a radical thing that happened. The fact that a Jewish man, a rabbi of that nature and caliber would come to him and even speak to him is one thing. Even go around Samaria, because they would go around Samaria. He went through his villages. The fact that he's there is one thing. The fact that he healed him is a shock in itself. It's not normal. Samaritans did not expect that to happen. They probably didn't expect healing to happen. They definitely did not expect healing to happen through a Jew. That'd be like a raider quarterback of the Raiders is down on the, the ground hurting, and the 49er comes over and starts massaging his calf muscle, okay? This doesn't happen like that. Never going to happen. You should amen that. It's, it's common sense. So this was a shock. It was unheard of. This Samaritan did not expect it. He knew he didn't deserve such a thing. He knew it. In the bottom of his heart, he did not deserve this. He didn't expect it to happen. So when he received it, he exploded with amazement and gratitude. 
Now, this is a, might be on a stretch and out on the limb, but for the most part, every kid, I believe, expects uh, to open presents on Christmas morning. Would you agree? Yeah, amen. I think it's kind of common sense now that when kids wake up and they look under the tree, there better be presents, mama and dada. Santa owes us. It's natural. It's expected. And we, I would call it, sometimes those kids have a belief or a perspective of entitlement. But we would not say that. And you would say that to your kid. No, he doesn't have that. He's just a good little boy. But what if I said we put that belief in them? Because of how we interact, how we do things. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to have presents. I love giving presents. It's a total picture of what Christmas is all about. God giving us Jesus. So give them graciously. But here's the, here's the, the point. They expect it. If they didn't get it, there'll be a civil war, a revolution among the world. So <laughs> it's expected. It's a tradition. It's built in. They wake up. They jump on their mom and dad. They wake them up. They go into the tree. They open up the presents. And they get mad there's not enough. I was there. Come on, three presents? Was Santa cheap? And I found out with my parents, and it all made sense. So I see, because I was a naughty boy, and they saw that. So I didn't really deserve it. But the matter of fact is I expected it. Okay, I I remember. When I was a child, I woke up. I expected, no doubt, there was going to be trees there. But parents, Santa, whoever, they owed it to me. Because I was a good kid. I even saw on one of the little notes we used to write to Santa that said, Santa, if you give me like a toy, I promise I won't get my name on the board as much. Because I, I expected, hey, if I acted a little bit better, you know, God owed me, or uh, Santa, not God, owed me this present. But we have a different attitude when a stranger blesses you with us with the gift outside of a holiday. Totally different. It's not expected, something we didn't earn, something that wasn't planned, something that had nothing to do with our own actions, and someone just blesses us with a gift. We're like, we're shocked. Why did you give this to me? I didn't do anything to deserve this. And the whole loving grace, freely giving things outside of our, of our perspective usually, especially around the holidays. But that's amazing because we would go, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything to bless you. Why would you bless me? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't register in our minds. So we must understand, and this is huge, we must understand entitlement is the greatest destroyer of gratitude and the fiercest opponent of grace. And I use those words intentionally. Every single word I typed intentionally. Entitlement is the greatest destroyer. It destroys gratitude. It destroys thankfulness. And it's the fiercest opponent of grace. And we're going to learn about grace in the next step. But it's, the fir- it's, it's violently opposed to grace. Entitlement is violently opposed to grace. What can possibly cause a Christian to be ungrateful? Entitlement. Entitlement is a practice by which one thinks he deserves and has a right to something. They owe me this. I have a right to this. I deserve this. I've earned this. There's nothing more lethal to our thankfulness than the belief that we're entitled to God's blessing. That we think, hey, God better bless us because not only am I saved, I'm doing good. I did my devotions this morning. I did pray. I did tithe. I haven't done this in a long while. I haven't looked at this, said this, been there, drank this, smoked. I haven't done. God should bless me because I'm being good. It's natural in our minds, this entitlement perspective. Stephen Furtick, a pastor, uh, says this. You can be grateful. You can't be grateful for something you feel entitled to. It's impossible. 
You can't feel entitled for something and feel grateful for it at the same time. Very, very hard. Why? Because when you feel entitled to it, you expect it. You expect it to be owed, or you think it's owed to you, and you think, or you thought, I've done so much to get here, that's why I'm getting this. It's not a gift, really. It's like a paycheck. We're not excited when we get paychecks, really. I mean, we are, but we're not like, oh, you gave me a paycheck? Thank you. No, we're not like, come on, paycheck was like a day late. I need it. We expect it. It's owed to us. We earned it. We deserve it. It's not a gift. It's an expectation. And if you believe God owes it to you to provide for you, to protect you, to keep you safe, to bless you, to love you, you have a mandatory expectation of it. And here's what happens. When you expect it as if it's owed to you, it no longer becomes love. It's now a contract. And God doesn't operate in contracts. He operates in grace. Never will there be a contract between God and humans. There's covenants, but it's based on God's character, not ours. Now, God's love is conditional in a sense where you experience more of it when you obey. That's the way he set it up. But you, you still experience God's love when you're in disobedience. Because we shouldn't be here right now. This is God's love, that we're alive. And you have to really understand the Bible in a simple language to understand that we're sinners and we have rebelled against God. Why would he even allow us to walk around? Why would he allow people who hate him to walk around? I don't even have an answer for that besides love and grace. If you tie God's blessing and love to all the good things you have done, all the time spent serving, all the money you've given to the church, all the prayers that you've prayed and Bible verses you've memorized, you misunderstand grace and will struggle with being thankful. If you say, hey, God blesses me when I do this, when I do A, so I'm gonna do A more. And then when God doesn't bless you or something doesn't happen the way you expect it, you become ungrateful. You complain and bitter and, and, and bicker because why? It's natural because we have expectations on something. And this is what kills gratitude. And this, I didn't say this last service, but it's so important, gratitude is because this, when people out there, outsiders who don't know Jesus, see you and you're grateful for everything, even in the midst of chaos, that sends something to them, a signal, a shock. When they go, why are you thankful when you lost your job? Why are you still going to church? Why do you follow this Jesus guy? Why do you believe in the Bible when you don't have enough money to pay your bills? And you go, because God loved me. He still loves me. He saved me. And I don't care if I lose my job. My sins are forgiven. When people see that, I don't care what sermon I preach, Pastor Terry preaches, nothing is more powerful than that. And that's the goal. That's the goal, is that your lives would shine bright with Jesus. How they shine bright? When you're thankful in the midst of something that you shouldn't be thankful for. At least logically, you should be thankful for. And I know I'm the most, I'm the most ungrateful when I have selfish expectations that aren't met. You ever been there? I become impatient and I, uh, I struggle with impatience because I have selfish or expectations that, that are based on pleasing me in the way I think, the, the way I want things to, to go. And so when those expectations, selfish expectations aren't met, I become impatient and ungrateful because I wanted it this way. E expectations are good to have, but when they're selfish and centered on you, they're a, t a ticking time bomb. Because you're going to go, hey, this, this, she didn't, my wife didn't treat me the way I expected. This church doesn't treat me the way I expected. My job, and you have all these expectations that are centered on yourself. And they're not healthy. They're not realistic. 
And then when they don't get made through or, or happen, ungratefulness starts to come up because it's centered on you and not people. And entitlement is a stealth bomber to our souls. It creeps up without warning. There's no like, the, maybe small blips on the radar, but it's not like a banner and there we go. Entitlement is coming. Beware. It doesn't happen like that. You just have expectation after expectation after experience after situation after circumstance. And you keep going. And further, further, you go along with selfish expectations. You wake up one day and you have this sense of entitlement. Hey, God owes me this. Hey, this person, my spouse owes it to me to love me and do this and make me this and be. And that begins the start of a very violent downhill trek. Because it's so stealth, so quiet, so silent that it creeps up in our souls without warning. And that's why we have to constantly be in the Bible, letting it wash over us, let God's Spirit convict us, challenge us, move us to areas we're not comfortable being in, stepping outside of our box so that we don't get comfortable and entitled, or then entitlement is our perspective. If you step outside the box and get into areas where God's going to challenge you and you're going to be out held open and God's going to go, Look at you got this and this and this and I want to help you, but this is what you have to do. That's scary. That's being vulnerable before people, before God, but that's the most healthy place you can be because you grow the most when you're vulnerable before God and people because you're, you're, not, you're not hiding things. You're keeping it out loud and saying, God, I need help with this. And Christian entitlement, the entitlement that we get as Christians, I think, I believe, full-heartedly, it comes from a misunderstanding of the Bible and the gospel. And I'm not saying it to be theologians and go to Bible college and read the Bible every five seconds and memorize thousands of scriptures. I'm not saying that, but you have to, in order to be a Christian, I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a Bible or a church camp, I was asking one of the students on a bus or somewhere on a field. I'm like, hey, they're telling me about their story. I'm like, so how'd you get saved? Or what does it mean to be a Christian? Or I asked them, like, what's the gospel? But I didn't say that. I said it in an easy language. I understand. They're like, What? Like, I, I've been going to church for like 10 years, you know, like, and I asked them like, well, you know, like, tell me about Jesus. And they're like, yeah, like God sent him. They didn't, they didn't know anything else. Now, I'm not saying you have to know all the answers, but that is the answer you have to know. If you don't know anything, know that God sent Jesus to die for your sins and forgive you in your place and rose again so you can have a new life. That's the basic And if you understand that, then you won't have this mindset where it says God wants to bless me always and give me a perfect life up to my expectations and help me get everything I want. That's a a false and a violently horrible, I mean, can you imagine just thinking that? God wants to give me what I want or God God better give me what I want. We don't say that. No one's going to walk around saying that. But do we believe it sometimes and act like it? I do. God is here to make my life better, people think. The more good I do, the more he loves me. False. That's not true. That means you can stop beating yourself up every single day for for failing. I'm not saying don't treat it seriously, sin, but stop beating yourself up. Because that's the reason why Jesus came. For that failure. For that sin. For that addiction. For that bad habit. For that slip up. For that mess up. He came for that. And if you think that that's going to disqualify you from God's love, you're sadly mistaken. That's the reason why he loved you, because he knew you couldn't, you couldn't really do anything good on your own. That's amazing. Because then you're not 
focused on you doing good and trying to be perfect. You're focused on just loving people and loving God, and he keeps it simple. But thinking that God want, or that you have God on your phone like an app, and he does what you want to do, and he's on your agenda, does not work. It's unhealthy. God's not something you attach and put in your pocket and pull out when you want something. And it's easy to treat him that way. When, when, when Jesus said, I want you to follow me, he didn't say, yeah, just come over like once a month and we'll have a little Bible study. No, he said, you leave your old life behind. And if you can't, you can't follow me. And sometimes in church, we're really polite and, and apologetic and we go, hey, you just got to say Jesus in your heart and he fits in your heart and there's a prayer and say that and you're saved. And then we have people, thousands of people living in the world that maybe aren't saved. They just have said a prayer and they have a wrong view of the gospel and expect God to give them what they want because they believe in God now. That's not what it is. That's why I was watching this documentary and he said, I just wish, he was heartbroken, this student. He said, I wish when my pastor comes up and says, hey, you need to accept Jesus, just pray this prayer. I just wish that next time he says that, right after he says that, he says, it is going to be the hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life. Because it is. It's not easy. You're fooled if you think following Jesus is easy. Is it simple? Yes. It's very simple. Black and white sometimes. It can get confusing, but mostly it's simple. But it's very hard because you're denying what you want and following Jesus because he knows what's best for you. You're denying your life and your comfort for him. Like Pastor Terry said, it's not easy believism. It's not this cheap grace where you just get whatever you want because you now go to church. It's are you really denying yourself to follow Jesus and doing what he wants? That will cut the root of entitlement, knowing the gospel and what Jesus wants. Also, must understand this. A real experience and a right understanding of grace are the greatest authors and promoters of gratitude. I would have just said understanding, but I know this through experience that you can't just understand grace and have that be enough. You can't just understand God's love for you and say, hey, I know God, love, God, God loves me, and that be enough. You have to experience it. I'm not saying, again, you have to understand every single detail, but understanding that God loves you isn't enough you need to experience it. And when you experience it, that becomes the catalyst of gratitude in your heart. You begin to overflow with gratitude once you understand and experience it. And that promotes healthy gratitude always. You're going to be thankful because you're understanding it. Grace is the greatest weapon against entitlement and ungratefulness that you have. Understanding it and constantly experiencing it. Now, what does the right understanding of grace looks like? You can write down that verse, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you can read it later. I encourage you to read it with your spouse, your family, because it's really short and simple, but it gives you the whole picture of our failures and God's love for us, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, I want to give you two definitions that are from the Bible, from the Greek, and they're simple. One's a basic one. The next one kind of unpacks it more. The Bible, the Greek word for grace, charis, means this, a free gift that is not deserved nor earned. That's it. Simple. Simple, right? You don't deserve it. You don't, you don't earn it, but it's a free gift. You don't have to pay anything back for it. It's free. You just get it because that person that gave it to you loves you and wants the best for you. Nothing you did earned that. The free gift. Second, it means this. And I love this definition. An extended kindness, or you could say love, a love that is no more hindered by sin than it is conditional upon good works. This is what it's saying. The bad things you and I do, the sin, the failures, the mess-ups, the, the shortcomings we have, they do not stop God's kindness from coming to us. 
They don't. If you believe that, that's, that's unhealthy. Because then you would believe every time you mess up, God's going to turn his back on you. He doesn't. Because there'd be no way for you to get out of that mess if he wasn't for you and loving you through it. And that's the beauty of the gospel of grace is that you get it when you don't deserve it. That's the whole thing of church and Jesus and his whole life. God gives you love when you don't deserve it. You, never, you will never deserve it. You will never do enough to earn it. And you will never fail enough to be far, too far from it. Never. You will never fail enough, never fall hard enough to be too far from God's love. And I've met people, I've met students crying in the front row after their sermons. They say, I'm not good enough. I can't. God doesn't love me because I've done all this stuff in my past and how can I forgive myself and how can he forgive me? I look him in the eyes and I said, he overlooks that because of Jesus. He doesn't hold that against you. You believe in Jesus, right? She said, yeah. He overlooks that. That's not on your record anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so is your sins removed from you. They're not a part of you anymore. The, 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 the plague is that we keep our sins in our pocket instead of dumping them behind us knowing that Jesus has separated us from them. So the bad things you do do not stop God's kindness from coming to you, no matter how bad they are. And this is what it also means. Grace means the good things that you accomplish do not earn you more of God's love. Doesn't matter how good you are, how much you tithe, how much you pray, you won't get more of God's love. You won't get more of God. Will you be blessed more? Yes, I believe that because God set up a system in life where when you obey God, you receive more of his blessings. It's not really a game of favoritism. It's the way it is. When you go the right side of the freeway, you get to go. When you go the wrong side, you die. Simple. God doesn't hate you. It's just a fact of life that there's, there's boundaries and scenarios and there's structures. When you obey God, you're going up the right way, the way life was created to be, and you're going to receive natural blessings. When you disobey, you're going against the way God created life to be, and you're going to receive natural consequences that aren't good. But the good things you do don't, don't mean that God loves you more. It doesn't mean that God is going to bless you more because of the good things you do. What happens when you believe that? You start doing a whole bunch of good things, and what? Expect God to bless you. And when he doesn't bless you the way you want it, no more gratefulness. And that becomes entitlement. Grace is free. And when you understand grace, it really messes you up. It does. Because you didn't go, wow, I have to be graceful to the people around me. Even if they betray me, I still have to love them. Things like getting paid for working, being punished for stealing, that's fair. No one complains when a child molester gets put into jail. No one does. God's love found in Jesus dying for your, you and, I, and my sins and our failures, that's not fair. It's not. It doesn't make sense. Grace isn't fair, but it's good. And you have to know that. It doesn't make sense. It's not up to your expectations. It's not because you earned it. It doesn't go away because you did something bad. It's not fair. Doesn't fit in our parameters of logic, but it's good, always good, and it's always there. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, a free, unearned, undeserved gift, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You know what he's saying? God has saved you, cleansed you, given you a new life, a future, eternal life, not because of anything you've done, but because of him. It's a gift freely. All you have to do is receive it. You don't work hard to earn it. That's beautiful. 
Because it says it's a gift, and also it's not a result of our working so that we can't boast, so that we can't go around to the world and go, hey, Jimmy, you work with this guy. Hey, Jimmy, look it. I'm doing a lot of good, okay? I'm helping the, the poor. I'm feeding the homeless. That's why I'm saved. What are you doing, buddy? That won't work. Because then I know us. We still boast even though we know it's grace. Can you imagine if it wasn't grace and it was earned? We would go around and we, we, we would have an edge on God. We would almost control God, have a leash on him because we would go, hey, God, remember, I did this. You owe me. I expect you to do this for me because, hey, you saved me because I'm good enough, but it's not like that. So God doesn't have, a, God's not on a leash and we don't control him. He chooses us and loves us despite our failures and our goodness. So you're saying all of these understand this and, you'll, and, and, and I'll be thankful. Awesome. Yes and no. I want you to understand that. The point is to understand that, but also hopefully that understanding today, maybe for some of you, will lead you to experience grace. So you won't just walk away going, I can repeat this, but I can experience this. So you don't just write it on your notes and put it and tuck it away in your car. You go, I'm going to experience it today and tomorrow and for the rest of my life because it's free and ongoing and never stops. And that's grace. And how do you receive it? By trusting and following Jesus. Not just saying, I love you, Jesus. Would you come into my heart and fit down in this little thing that pumps blood? No, no. It's saying, I love you. I trust you to save me and I'm going to follow you. That means picking up a foot and following. Not just staying in your chair and go, Jesus, you go. I'll be there in a minute. And watching what he does on the sidelines. Pastor Terry always says it. You got to get get in the game, not on the sidelines. Why? Because if you get in the game, you're going to be active. You'll be blessed more. You'll experience grace more. You'll be able to give grace more because of it. What does it look like? Receiving Jesus, being forgiven of your sins, standing in front of God, even though you're, un- you're ashamed for your failures, you can go, I stand guilt-free. And there is no shame because of Jesus. That's what experiencing grace looks like. You sideswipe by grace. That's the point. doesn't make sense. The day God's grace and love become normal, fair, and expected is the day we've begun, begun to misunderstand Jesus. The day I believe that God's grace and love for me is just normal is the day I start to begin to just misunderstand Jesus and confuse him. The day that I believe that it's fair is the day I start to misunderstand Jesus. The day that you believe that you expect it or that you expect God's love to come to you is the day you begin to misunderstand Jesus because it's not fair. It's always love and it's not expected. But it's always good and it's always there. You have to understand that. Jesus invoked that in his life. That's who he was. Charles Spurgeon, old pastor, said this, my favorite pastor. He said this, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. I can't imagine any of us inside here, whether you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, that you are not a receiver of mercy. Every one of you, whether you believe or not, you receive mercy from God daily. Like I said, once you read the Bible and see how wretched we really are, how fallen and how much we keep falling short of God, the fact that he still has us around and he still provides for people, he still gives food and, have, and gives shelter to those who curse his name, that shows you something. Other religions, God, would, God wants to smite those who don't believe. This, God loves those who don't believe. Why? Because it's God's kindness that leads people to repent. It's not judgment, not wrath, not strict teaching. It's, hey, God loves you despite of your sin, and that's enough to turn your soul into saying, I'm going to come back to him. I'm going to come to him. 
Because he doesn't judge me like that. He doesn't say, you're a sinner in this category, you'll never be saved. He's saying, you are a sinner in this category and you need saving. And I'll do it for free. So what does thankfulness look like? Really quick, I want to just give you one example what it actually looks like. We know what it means. We know what kills it. We know what causes it. Grace causes thankfulness. Entitlement kills gratitude and thankfulness. But what does it look like? If you remember the story in Luke, this is what the guy did, the Samaritan. He didn't just go to his family. He didn't go back to his house. He said, man, I need to say thank you to Jesus. I need to say thank you to that man. I need to tell him how much I appreciate him. I need to say, you're good, Jesus. I value you. I love you. I'm indebted to you. I appreciate you. And what happened? He fell on his face at Jesus' feet. And that's what we call worship. You know what's special about him being down there on the dirt? He probably realized, I'm not worthy of this. That's what you do when kings pass by. You bow down. Why? Because you're not worthy. They're more important. This guy knew it. Jesus, you're special. I appreciate you. You've loved me. You've you've healed me. I'm going to worship. I'm going to give value to you. I'm going to thank you for what you've done. And this is what thankfulness looks like. If you have a real and true and genuine thankfulness, it will always return back to Jesus and making much of him. Always. It will never be self-pleasing. It will never be simply lip service. It will always be turning back to Jesus and saying thank you. And your thankfulness should always flesh out into loving people and loving God, simply. If you get something and you're blessed with it and you don't deserve it, you don't just use that to keep it and be selfish. When you receive something from Jesus, from God, that's not, that, that you don't deserve, the best thing you can do to say thank you is to use it to honor him and love his people. The money you have, the clothes you have, the time you have, the resources you have, the life you have. You want to say thank you? Don't write a thank you card to Jesus. Don't say thank you in your prayers. Those are all, those are all good. It's a good start. But you want to say thank you? Live a life that honors him. Live a life that at the end, when you have one last breath, you could say, my life has said thank you to him for everything he's done. And I can live a thousand more lives and still not say thank you enough. You won't, I don't understand. I, do, I, I can preach it, but I don't understand how good his grace is. I can preach it and tell you to, but I don't understand how strong his love is. I know it's stronger than my comprehension. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be bowled over and shocked by him and how beautiful Jesus is. Amen? Well, we're going to pray real quick. And I encourage you, uh, I, I encourage you to go home and really let this sink in. Let it sink in the way that you need to sink in in your life, personally. This is not about being thankful Americans. It's not about being thankful Christians. It's about being a thankful you. Don't look at other people. Look at yourself. I'm going to look at myself. I want this to sink into my life and not just be a sermon I preach. Amen? God, thank you so much. Thank you seems so small. That word seems so small in comparison to what you've done for us. I just pray that by your spirit and grace and mercy that people will understand that this morning. They would experience it, the true, the simple love of Jesus that looks past failures and into the person. It says, I love you because I love you. I pray that people would receive that forgiveness this morning, experience that grace Get rid of the the perspective of entitlements and expectations and owing and earning and deserving and know that we are just beggars. 
That's all we are. We are simply, simply beggars hoping for more, and yet you give us so much. You treat us like kings. So thank you, Jesus, for that. May people be changed this morning because of your love and a right understanding of the gospel and grace. And may they be able to move into a position where they can be that to other people and be graceful and give grace and give forgiveness and give love and be thankful for every blessing you've given us because you deserve it. We love you, Jesus. You're beautiful. You're amazing. You're powerful. We're not worthy, but um, you still love us and that confuses the heck out of this young man. And I pray that it confuses um, confuses us all and drives us more to you. Everybody said, amen. You guys are loved. Have an amazing day and be thankful.